Welcome to the JMS Podcast. My name is Jorge M. Sanchez, and thank you for tuning in. Today's guest is Caesar Kent. He is a poet here from San Jose, California. We had a great talk about poetry, writing, and he has a really interesting, unique way of approaching poetry. So uh, I can't wait for us to get to that interview. Before we go to the interview, I just want to say hello there. That's it. I just want to say hi. Hello. If you have not heard a hello today, here is mine. Hello. Hope your Sunday is going well. I hope this new start of the year is going well. And as we are preparing ourselves for the inevitable inauguration of our president-elect-to-be, all I can say is hello. Before some of us have to say goodbye. Um, I am having nightmares recently about this new administration going up. Wow, my I always forget to turn off my Facebook when I'm doing this recordings. That's it's so annoying. Um, but let's see, that's who sent me that. It was oh, it's one of my friends. We're going out for dinner tonight, so uh, good to know. Okay, everybody's on board. It's it's always interesting to arrange dinners when you have like you know of friends of three or more, right? Because you're an adult, everybody's working their full time jobs, everybody is just so busy that we really have to plan out um, our schedules and when we can actually hang out and be like, all right, we're still friends, right? Yes, we must be because we're still hanging out, even if it's like once every uh, five months. Anyway. Uh, I have a big announcement. It's official that this podcast will have its first ever music event this Saturday at Cafe Frascati. On Saturday 21st, it is the JMS Podcast Mini Music Festival. This is a launching event to see how it goes. And pretty much you're going to see some familiar faces that were guests on this podcast. Of course, it is not all of our musical guests. It is only a select few because I've had quite a number of musical guests on here. So it's great to announce that this is going to happen. I'm excited. I'm excited to perform. That's right. I'm going to be performing as well under my musical name, which is Jorge M. Sanchez and the Wandering Poets. So January 21st, Cafe Frascati. Show starts at 7.30. you got some great musicians like Marty Murillo, Jake Wickman, Patrice Faith, Headlined by Israel Sanchez and the best opening band that they could ever be here in San Jose, Time Will Decide, which is um, run by uh, David Fournier and Wild Bill. And those two are some amazing friends I have. And uh, I I can't wait. I can't wait. So put that on your calendar. January 21st, Cafe Friscati, 7.30, JMS Podcast mini music festival see you there people i want to see you there i want to see all my listeners there i can't wait to talk to you guys in person and uh we're gonna be recording some of it to be featured in our next uh episode here at the jms podcast so let's uh let's continue on with my talk with caesar kent I listen to some local podcasts. They got some creative titles. Yeah. To their podcast. Yeah. I'm like, what was I thinking back in the day? Bro? I was like, <laughs> just my initials. Like, how narcissistic can that like be perceived? Yeah. <laughs> now, do you pronounce it Caesar or Cesar? Uh, Caesar, but you can Caesar. pronounce it however you want. However I want. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I want to pronounce it the way you want it, man. It's your name. Everyone says it differently, so I, I mean, I go with Caesar. But if you want to say Cesar, I get Cesar. I get. What's the most annoying thing that people have have called you? Um, oh, I mean, regarding to your name. Okay. I mean, I get. Jesus a lot more than my name well, where does that come from because I look like Jesus kind of especially when people are drunk around me um, I get a lot of Jesus oh I've had people take pictures of me because I look like Jesus really yeah is it the, the you, you got some long hair I have long hair I have the beard and the mustache and uh, yeah I don't know what it is but I got a Jesus vibe I guess <laughs> <laughs> how you been though I mean good I just moved to Alameda Alameda yeah how's that working out it's for you it's a beautiful town yeah. Yeah. When people mention Alameda, like, um, I feel it's a small town. Yeah, it's like a little island um, in the East Bay. Uh-huh. Right by Berkeley and Oakland. 
But yet, there's so many people that have, like, some connection to that place. Like, somebody knows from someone there, or (laughs) someone has family member there, or someone has some history there. Yeah, I didn't know about it until I met my girlfriend, and she lives there. And then I found out about it, and I fell in love with it the moment I saw it. Oh, man. What sets it apart? Um, So, it's in the East Bay, but it's a really... It's kind of a Santa Cruz-y crowd. And it's got that kind of small-town feel. Um, Like, you have to drive 25 miles an hour around the island. And the cops are apparently assholes about that. Um, you have to drive like yeah. you, no more than twenty five. Yeah, like everyone says everyone I met is like just drive twenty five miles an hour. I mean, it's it's always tough to yeah. to uh, for to deal with the police in mm-hmm. a small community like that. Yeah, you know they get bored and they start enforcing yeah. things more than you know they really should. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. You were saying, but yeah, so they, they try to keep it that way. I guess kind of keep that small town feel, um, and it's it's gorgeous. I live like a two minute walk from the water. Mm. Um, it's amazing place and I was I mean I'm going to Berkeley and start uh, Tuesday at Berkeley no way yeah I mean uh, yes way <laughs> wow Berkeley yeah how's that man that's awesome that's crazy cause, what you, yeah. uh, I uh, left out of high school I had like a 2.5 GPA uh-huh. um, I went to some shitty college for like a semester I dropped out what and, college uh, UC or CSU Northridge Northridge oh I have a friend who went there yeah <laughs> I, I, it was kind of a shitty location yeah <laughs> it's a gorgeous campus but the, the town is garbage what were you studying uh, English, mm-hmm. and um, but I just, I spent a semester there. I didn't want to go to school, and so I dropped out. Um, and I spent about five or six years at De Anza. Yeah, yeah. and then um, I spent a good amount of De Anza yeah, myself. Yeah, I love it. It's a great school, honestly. Yeah, I fell in love with that place, and I miss it. Um, and then it all kind of came together when I was applying for, or right before I applied for, you know, to transfer. Um, I got onto the Red Wheelbarrow, which is Dianza's literary magazine. Right. Um, I got contacted by Robert Robert Pesich to join the Poetry Center of San Jose uh, as a board member, and then I got involved with a group called the Flash Fiction Forum, and oh. it's all happened in like a short period of time. So when I was writing my application, I had all that to throw in there, and I got into Berkeley with like a three point one eight GPA. Congrats, man! <laughs> that's that's fucking amazing. Yeah. Wow. It's a long road coming, and yeah. and look where you ended up. It's yeah. a pretty good place. What are you studying at Berkeley? English. English? English, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> when did poetry become a, a thing for you? Um, I was about 15. I think I was a freshman in high school, and um, I actually had a girlfriend that lived in like Santa, San Francisco, um, and she got me into writing like smutty poetry, I guess. Smutty poetry? Yeah, that's where I got my start. What, what does that mean? Like It was like, I called it erotica, but it was just smut in like a poetry form. Um, it was it was really bad. I can't read it anymore. That's, um, that's funny. It's yeah, a, a freshman trying to come with it with it with the erotic. A virgin freshman trying uh, to be <laughs> <laughs> writing about sex. Yeah, <laughs> I've been there, man. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, like, well, like, is there some details you could you could uh, oh my let God. us know about? I have not looked at it, but it was me trying to write about sex, trying to imagine what sex would be like. Uh-huh. Through like I don't know our discussions about sex. I don't know. It was there's, really so, there's something beautiful about that, yeah. right? When you let your imagination, uh, you know, kind of take over. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then she broke up with me, and then I started writing to, like you know emo poetry. Because well, I, I hope she didn't break up with you because of the smut poetry. No, no, no. Uh-huh. She was into that. Um, but then she broke up with me, and I started getting you know that angsty poetry, uh-huh. and it kept kind of going at a point because I never, I'd never really wanted to write poetry. I thought it was something I would never do. Um, I hated poetry. I still kind of hate poetry. <laughs> And uh, but I ended up loving it. I was like, this, "I really need this," and then it stuck with me. Yeah, what, what were some aspects about poetry that you didn't like at the time? Um, I think a lot of it is that what's taught in schools is really boring. You know, mm. like um, they teach, they give you these like the classics, and it's poetry that you need all this context to understand, mm-hmm. and it's stuff that's not relatable at all to most high school students or most people in general. So most people think they hate poetry because they're fed so much of it that's kind of boring. Right, you know, right. and not the good stuff, not slam or spoken word or things that are actually really enjoyable. Well, I feel like poetry, like most things, uh, performance-wise, is that you can't really get its full effect in a classroom mm-hmm. because you're kind of looking at it from a distance. Yeah, and and you're kind of reading it with not in the right environment. Mm-hmm. Like if you go to a open mic or to a poetry slam, I think that's a good environment for any performance, especially yeah. for poetry. Because there, you, you're not just reading something or listening to something, but you're, you're watching someone yeah. and how they're, 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 they're telling this poem. Yeah. And I feel that that's where the, the true beauty of poetry 
kind of is. Yeah. And I don't get me wrong. Like, I know there's great poets who are, who are more on the word, who are mm-hmm. more on the page. Yeah. And that has its own, I feel, its own universe of great stuff. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but for someone young, you know, for someone who's, like, in high school, for someone yeah. who, who's, like, you know, <laughs> it's still discovering this world, it, it's kind of hard to really to really get in there. Yeah. And so much it's the it's language evolves. And then you have these poems from, like, 200 years ago, and the language has just changed. It, you, it's incomprehensible. And if you need 20 footnotes to read a poem, then you're not really reading the poem. You're, you know, just trying to decipher gibberish. Yeah. Are you referring to Shakespeare? Shakespeare is one of the biggest things. Shakespeare is a great writer. Yeah. And the stuff is beautiful when you get into it. But trying to read that when you have no sense of his language, it's like you're just reading lines that are gibberish. Okay. You know? And when you're first starting out, when you're doing, you know, when you went from smut to uh, to angsty poetry, was there any other influences that you were looking towards to that were outside the classroom? Um, the one poet that I, the person that turned me on to poetry was Richard Bardigan, who was, um, he was considered the last of the beats. He's kind of outside of that generation, but also sort of part of it. Hmm. Explain to me what the beats are. I'm not uh, familiar so with that. The, the beat generation, so that's uh, Kerouac and Ginsburg and... Okay. Yeah, you know, the they were a movement in the 50s, I think, 40s or 50s, kind of pre-hippie. Uh-huh. Um, and sort of much grungier, much grittier, um, really influenced by bebop and jazz. And um, they're the people that really kind of took poetry to a new level for the sort of more of an American style of poetry. Um and they're like a major influences and Richard Bardigan was he kind of knew the people in the community but um, he's sort of part of it and not part of it and his poetry is just simple um, everything he writes is almost like children's writing for adults hmm. um, and when I read him I was like this makes sense this is poetry that makes sense it doesn't try to rhyme or it's not convoluted it's really simple it has metaphors that just make sense without making sense and then for, of course I tried to emulate him for a while when I started writing real poetry um, and I'm still in love with him. He's still the writer that keeps me going, honestly. Now, you mentioned real poetry. When, when, when was that, that period where you're like, all right, this is much more than just uh, an expression. Mm-hmm. This is you know something I really want to dedicate my life to. Uh, I think it took about five years before I wrote a poem that I was actually happy with. Five years ago? It was five, uh, actually about five years ago. I've been writing for about ten years. So after five years of writing poetry, I wrote one that I was actually happy with. What's this one? Um, it was called... Uh, Nomad mm-hmm. and it's it's my first performance piece too um, or it became a performance piece it was just the first time I wrote a, I rewrote a poem because I'd always just written out and I think like, it's perfect the way it is I'm just gonna let it go and I would write hundreds of poems and then this one I was like I'm not happy with this yet and I wrote about six drafts and eventually I got to the point where I was like this is what I want and I realized a good poem for me has to take about six drafts and for some po- poets it's like one one done they're, they're good mm-hmm. I think like Roberto Tingo Duran can do that Mm-hmm. This kind of just little perfect poems out, um, but for me it takes a lot more editing and rewriting and revising and rethinking until the poem really comes to life as it should be. Um, and then that's when it clicked to me and it's like I really, really want to do this for my life. Like this is something I need to do. What was the poem about? Um, so it's um, it's it was like my first real delve into the um, what we call the conceit, the like extended metaphor. And it's about being nomads and walking together and then the paths that, you know, intersect and dissect and the heart as a symbol. Um, and so it's like heavy in metaphor and it, it divests up from like the reality. And a lot of my spoken word poems try to do that now is I try to go for that kind of surreal effect of a poem that's not literal at all. And it's 100% in metaphor, but it reflects, of course, reality or the emotional state um, through metaphor. Was that something that you got from Richard? Was um, it that bit of surrealism? Not really, honestly. He's got this... Maybe a little surrealism from Bardigan. Mm-hmm. But um, that was just something I kind of found on my own. I can't say there was an actual influence for that one. Um, and I really don't read that much poetry. And a lot of people do, but a lot of poets do. And a lot of people that just enjoy poetry do it. And I, I get kind of bored reading poetry. So where do you look to? Um, I actually look more to fiction. Um, so I'm influenced by people like Kurt Vonnegut... Um, John Steinbeck is one of my tops um, and I don't know I read anything really and I'm a copy editor as well so I'll read um, like flyers yeah. and I'll read like signs that people have written on put on a toilet or something do, like that do you judge them? you're like oh yeah, come I, on dude you're I, not even trying yeah I edited them like I'll, <laughs> I'll take out a pen sometimes and edit punctuation yeah. on like flyers yeah that's funny yeah uh, like do you, 
you make all kinds of flyers like it or is it oh no i just edit like i'll see them like on someone's board and i'll be an asshole pull out a pen and correct it yeah yeah Yeah, i'm pretty sure one of my flyers might have been corrected (laughs) here or there but it it, so okay so you feel you got a bit of surrealism through books yeah books um i'm also influenced a little bit by um can't remember his name he's a surreal writer wrote about uh, he wrote the teachings of don juan um, Carlos Castaneda. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, that influenced me a little bit too. Got me more into the surreal. But something a bit about it was, um, I guess, trying to express an emotional state. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, what I was going through in poetry when I started using these heavier metaphors started making a lot of sense. And it was a way of self healing, I guess, right. to now, turn that. What is it about metaphors that attracts you to them? <sighs> like, it, then again, you know, what aspect of, of a metaphor do you, do you really try to grasp? Um, I try to get really, really heavy in there. <clears throat> and I think um, a lot of poets will do is they'll kind of go like find a bunch of metaphors. A lot of spoken word poets, too, will do this and just keep throwing them together. Um, and for me, I'd rather go really, really heavy into one and expand it. And it might, it seems a lot of things that don't make sense together, like a wall and a ghost go together in my head for some reason. And I have a poem about a ghost behind a wall. And it kind of, at first it was just a wall, and eventually I kept writing it. And I realized there had to be a ghost behind it. And um, it just kind of evolved that way. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know what it is. something that just has always made sense in my head. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess I'm kind of an escapist as well. And so using these metaphors is a way of using that kind of escapism, that imagination, to get really uh, in-depth with how I'm feeling and try to express that properly instead of, like, I'm sad today or I'm depressed because this person said this thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So you really try to dig in. Yeah. Okay, I hear you, man. And so you wrote this poem, mm-hmm. Nomad. Yeah. Which was your first performance piece. Yeah. And you're like, all right, I think I can do this. Let's yeah. Get, right? Where'd you go from there? Um, so I wrote that actually for a girl who left me a month later. <laughs> you know what? The things, the things we do for women, <laughs> yeah. man. Things... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. No, but that's great. I mean, look, a, a woman uh, got you into poetry in the mm-hmm. first place, you know, and then you... It's all, it's all woman. <laughs> like, like I had a, a long time ago, I had a boss tell me, it's like, you, you got to find love almost every day. Yeah. To, to really, um, to really uh, get, cre- not creative necessarily, but to really motivate yourself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to fall in love every single day. I'd go to like, a cafe when I was like 16 and fall in love with baristas and waitresses and strangers. Like I write, I have so many poems yeah. about women that never, I never talked yeah. to. Yeah. I feel like I fall in love almost too easily. Yeah. I fell in love, <laughs> I fell in love last night because I, I went to a movie theater and there was someone who popcorn like mm-hmm. if I wanted popcorn and, and she was like oh do you want uh, butter I'm like yeah and I just fell in love with her because she offered me butter yeah. I'm like <laughs> who is this woman I must marry her like she knows everything I don't know but that's me getting neurotic yeah like, that's who I am but but like I totally relate to that because yeah. it's it's like in a sense of like not so much you're trying to impress them mm-hmm. but it's like you, you have a reason to write this now yeah or, or not yeah it's, it's, it's just, part of it's trying to impress them part of it's also like I found something and it's really meaningful to me uh-huh. and then when you get that when you fall in love with somebody and they don't love you or the love ends when you've got the poem from it it kind of it's like I got something to take away and so the experience is worthwhile mm-hmm. and it's almost like we used each other up and now we can go our separate ways with something better having done that do you find it difficult to go back to those poems that you read um sometimes at first I will not read them for months yeah. um but then I guess Performing it allows me to re- sort of reclaim a lot of poems. So in performing it every time, it's an, it's new to me as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I get to sort of rethink and re- add new meaning to the poem as I recite it over and over again. So even if I wrote it for this or I was feeling this way, now when I do it, it's entirely different. Yeah, man. I don't know. I, I'm still having trouble with that. I, I wrote a song for a gal, and it's a pretty good song, I feel. And, and now I can't even play it. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, but good for you, though. Yeah. Good, good for you. <laughs> So anyway, you were saying that that at the time you were continuing to to do poetry for this new girl that you were trying to yeah impress. Um, it was some she was like eighteen, I was twenty, I think. Um, and I read for her, and it didn't go far. She was, had like really strict parents, and it just it didn't work out. Um, but I wrote that poem, and then later, when I was uh, twenty two, I think I was in I happened to be in Paris, and I walked into this place called Shakespeare and Company, which is like an English bookstore that I guess houses writers. Where's this at? Um, it's in Paris. It's right by Notre Dame. It's like right by the Seine. 
How'd you end up in Paris? Um, my mother loves Paris. She's Belgian and she loves Paris. Um, and my father was... Uh, 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 like I mean, you made that connection. Yeah. She's Belgian, therefore she likes Paris. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> so she's, she's from the French part of, of, of yeah. Belgium. Okay. Yeah, and she goes back to Paris as often as she can. Oh, man. And uh, my father got um, moved to Stockholm uh, for his job to open up a new branch, something like that, or they were taking over a company. Oh, what line of work is he in? Uh, he just retired, but he was a, a controller uh, accountant, uh-huh. and he'd been doing that. They were both, both my parents were accountants. They were, uh, I guess, back in the day, like in the '60s, they were the hippies in the accounting department at San Jose State. Oh, interesting. And they ended up together, and yeah. Oh, and and both your parents come from uh, at least your mother. She's from Belgium. Belgium, and my father's from here. Okay, so she came over here. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. How was that experience? Um, I don't know. She was pretty young, I think. Um, my sister and I were going through her old yearbook photos a couple years ago, or yearbook, and there's a lot of things like, notes like, I hope you get to go back to Belgium, because apparently she really wanted to go back to Belgium. Uh-huh. Homesick. And, yeah. Because everything, what everyone's writing is like, I hope you get back to Belgium. Oh, everyone's telling her, <laughs> yeah. I hope you make it back to yeah. Belgium. Oh, no. But, uh, <laughs> I guess she stayed. That's good. Were you taught French? Uh, no, I wish I was. Mm-hmm. I'm still angry. I mean, I, I took French in high school and college. Yeah. Um, I know a little bit of it, but my mother never taught me. All right, man. Unfortunately, yeah. So you guys ended up in Paris. You visited and you, and you went to the Shakespeare bookstore. Yeah. Shakespeare and Company. Um, and it's a. I mean, if you're ever in Paris, it's a place to go to. It's beautiful. It's packed with books. You can barely navigate. And I walked upstairs. There's just this reading room, and there's it's kind of historic. And um, I happened to be sitting in this room when this like crowd sort of formed around me <clears throat> and I it's a, I guess I think every Sunday they do the Mad Hatter's Tea Party run by some old British woman who can't hear and uh, like she'd ask everybody's name and then she would repeat back to them like wrong but she had to go over and over again until she got their name right mm-hmm. and so like we spent like, a minute on every single person's name um, and I was going up to leave because like I think like I thought it was like, something that had been you know planned and she's like, where are you going? I was like, I'm just going to leave. She's like, no, you sit here. And you, this is like a poetry reading. Don't you want to sit down and join us? So I was like, okay. <laughs> and um, they were going around. And um, it was like every person had a, either a poem or someone else's poem they wanted to read or song lyrics. And they were just talking about a line. And that's just what it was. It was just a discussion on poetry, like going person by person. And when it got to me, I just happened to have Nomad memorized. Because like I want to perform it someday. And I was there and I did it. And it was a like it was really well received. Um, I had this really cute girl like lean over and say like thank you. And so I was just like, it's okay. made it all worth it. <laughs> yeah. Oh okay. Yeah. I um. You. So I did that and that was my, kind of my icebreaker. Um. And then I started going to this place, Blue Rock Shoot, that uh, closed recently after like ten years. Oh, um, that was in Saratoga. Yeah. You know what? I never had the opportunity to go there, but I heard so much about it. It was a wonderful experience. It just closed. Oh my god! Ten years. Like ten years. It's been. I don't know how long the the place has been there, but the open mic was there for at least a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's that's it. Yeah, it's really depressing because that's really where I got my start. Okay. Um, and I started performing there, and then. Um, Who was running that room? Running uh, this guy Roger was the MC for most nights, um, and when he was out, I was kind of the backup MC at a point. Mm. Um. But it was just a great community of people. A lot of, I mean, I was the only poet there, really. But a lot was of it mostly musicians. It was almost entirely musicians, but some really fantastic musicians. And it was not that typical of my crowd of like young people playing acoustic guitars. It was like people that should have been famous, who just know their way around a guitar, like a classic or acoustic, electric, anything. More veterans, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. And it was a fan. It was fantastic. Um, and I, I started doing poetry over there and I was nervous as hell like I didn't have that stage presence um, and then I was at a, a bar and I was writing that, that poem with the wall and the ghost and I had this buddy big guy like he, he used to be a bouncer he's a big guy a good buddy of mine um, and I, I was writing the poem at the bar and I had like the first draft done and um, my buddy sits down next to me and I'm up for a smoke he's like hey can I read this and I'm like yeah sure and I come back and he says you know, I was going to uh, laugh at you and call you a fact for writing poetry, but this is really good. <laughs> and then uh, he's like, I don't see this when it's done. Yeah. And he starts showing to people. Oh, really? Like, at the bar? Like, no. Yeah, I was like, this is not even done. <laughs> Look what my friend wrote. Yeah. And then uh, six track later, it's done. I'm like, hey, and you wanted to see this. And then he says, hey, everybody, we're going to hear this guy read his poem. So he literally dragged strangers out of the bar, like physically forced people out of the bar. Oh, man. Empty the bar out. So I had to go stand on the bench outside and then perform it. 
and people were like grumbling because they didn't want to be outside hearing poetry no one likes poetry uh but then a lot of them actually liked it and actually got a really good reception um and then he told me um if you can perform in front of a bunch of drunk assholes that don't give a fuck about poetry and get that kind of reception you can perform anywhere and that was like a huge turning point for me so then i realized like this is what i want to do you know? oh man yeah you, you took the comedy approach to it yeah in stand-up comedy, if you perform in front of a bar where, mm-hmm. where everybody's drunk and doesn't give a shit, you can perform anywhere. Yeah. It's funny that you apply that in poetry. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever heard of that. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, it was just that I, did, I performed at the, the bar ready room a couple times. Like Someone would drag me out and say they wanted to hear a poem. And it was always cool. Sometimes people would buy me a shot or something like that. Um, and it was like, the thing was like I loved performing at bars. I love performing in front of people that don't like poetry. Jesus, man. You're, you're like the rock star poet <laughs> around here. <laughs> yeah, I like to think of myself that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you do something in particular that I've never seen before here locally. Uh, and I, I think the first time I saw you was in Rafi's spot. Mm-hmm. And was it Sunnyvale? Yeah, it's uh, Judy's, I think. Judy's, something yeah. like that. And you went up there with a the friend who played guitar. Yeah. And you said that it, it's, it's completely improvised. Yeah. Your, you, your friend plays a melody and you're just going to feed off the melody yeah. and you're going to so I go and spout I usually, whatever comes to your mind. I usually go in with a poem, so I already know the poem. I have the poem memorized. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then he'll usually make up the melody on the spot or we'll practice for like maybe 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we'll, our, our practice time is just like, okay, just turn at this line. Where did that come from? Um, so what happened was my buddy Brendan, um, we're at Blue Rock Shoot, and one week he's like, I have nothing new to play this week. Do you want to just come up on stage and I'll play behind you? And I'm like, sure. Um, and then the next week that happens again. And every time it's kind of well-received, it's new. Um, whenever you add music to poetry, it completely changes the poem. Mm-hmm. Um, I had done it a couple times before I had met him. And I love doing it. It, it just, it's a new experience. It's a new way of looking at my own poetry. Because you don't know what the, you don't know what the musician's thinking. And they might not interpret the poem the same way I do. And because I'm following them in a sense... It changes the way I see the poem as well. Um, so we did like depressing poems to a folk song, to kind of a folk music, and it changed the way I do it entirely. Um, anyway, so we did that like three times in a row, and eventually I'm like, okay, we need a band name. Like we're doing this enough times. So I decided um, to take our ages. I was 24, he was 36, 60, and then um, he's Brendan Caesar BC. So our band name became 60 BC, mm-hmm. and we had a standing gig like every week. We would do 60 BC, um, and we'd just make it up. And uh, we add, we, now we have a couple pieces that are like standards, and we actually have a set thing to play, but we still kind of fool around with it on stage. It's always different. Um, and sometimes we, we bring up um, other musicians, other artists, sometimes singers, sometimes pianists, um, sometimes guitarists, and we always make it new. We call it 60 BC in it. Yeah. And it's always different, it's always new. Jamming it up? Yeah. It's fascinating, man. And then I remember, so pretty much you, because I remembered you there, mm-hmm. and then you did it again at uh, Studio Bongiorno. Yeah, Burdentale, yeah. And I just found it so interesting like, that you, you, t- you took that approach, yeah. which is so different. And it seems like you were mostly uh, around, looks like you started off, at least uh, in the public, with musicians. Yeah. That was like your, your hangout spot. Yeah, and, I was surrounded by musicians, I was like the house poet. When did you get involved with the San Jose poetry scene? Um, so after I joined the uh, Poetry Center of San Jose, um, I was like the only young person there. Um, I think they brought me in for a little bit more variety. Tell me a bit about this organization. Okay, so PCSJ is a like a 40-year organization. Um, it was started by Nils Peterson back in the day. Um, and it essentially tries to run poetry in San Jose and the surrounding areas because there's not really poetry centers for anywhere else in the area, um, in the South Bay, really. Um, so it... Um, organizes poetry um, last September we had our second annual poetry festival um, we're coming up for a third one this year as well um, and it essentially gets money from bigger grants and puts them towards workshops and performances and readings and open mics for the poetry scene um, it's a little bit of an older crowd um, but Mike McGee joined um, about a year ago I think and um, he's been trying to incorporate more of that younger crowd as well, the open mics, uh, the spoken word and slam scenes. And Scorpion X, who's the slam master, also joined. Uh, the slam master for San Jose Slam. Um, so it's, it's a growing organization now. And um, it, it, it's meant to like serve poetry in the area. 
Um, and we brought in some pretty cool people. We brought in the Poetry Pulitzer Prize winner last year, uh, Gregory Pardlow, for a reading. Um, and some really cool things happen. Um, it's usually at Works Gallery on uh, Market. Um, it was really at their events. And I think once a month they have like a well-read reading session. Um, and there's actually a lot going on with it. It's a pretty cool organization. It's really small. We have monthly meetings um, open to the public if anyone wants to come. And um, it's just sort of, it's, an, it's a nice little organization. What kind of venues do they usually hold up these events? Um, usually it's just in our art gallery, the Works Gallery. And um, usually they'll have some kind of big names. Um, sometimes it's someone like the poet laureate Arlene Brubiala, um, or you know David Perez, and they're trying to get kind of uh, keynote speakers for these events. And then there's usually an open mic section, mm-hmm. um, and it's there's a lot of different things going on with it. Um, and sometimes we'll get contacted by say San Jose State to kind of co-sponsor an event. Um, or other organizations will kind of ask us for some money and some help some to kind of co-sponsor things and get our, our fingers in all these different pies. Interesting. Yeah. And you say you were the youngest? Yeah, when they brought me on, I was the youngest person. Um, I think I still am technically the youngest person. And um, after that, I, I took on the marketing director position for some reason. Mm-hmm. And um, this is when we were... This is... I think it was during the summer I, I joined... And we were just starting to plan the um, poetry festival for this that September, the September the September that just passed, and um, I suggested a spoken word segment, and I ended up somehow being the host for that automatically. <laughs> so I was like, I need to find other spoken word artists, and um, I just started going to open mics, and I went to one hosted by uh, Big Nate Watkins, in um, it used to be in the I think Louisiana Bistro, and um, I saw Mike. It was a Valentine's Day thing, I think. And I saw Mike there, Mike McGee, and I contacted him, got him um, on the set. I talked to Shaka Campbell, and I got him for the booked for the thing. And I was like, I need to start doing these events, because I'd never really done the poetry scene. Um, so I decided I need to start going to these events and just kind of forcing myself to perform in front of other poets. Um, and then I got found out Burning Tale, mm-hmm. and I fell in love with the Burning Tale. I've not missed a session since I started going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mike started um, Live Lit Every Sunday, um, and brought me and a bunch of other poets on as like co-hosts, um, and so I, because of Mike, I mean Mike run things, mm-hmm. and so knowing Mike McGee has got me involved in a lot of poetry related things um, in the area, and it's kind of got me used to performing with other poets and getting me comfortable in that space because it's a lot easier to perform with uh, like musicians because when you're the only poet, they don't really have much of a gauge of you, you know, um, but when you're with other poets, it's I don't know. I mean, they're all supportive. You, you had a listening crowd. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a much different crowd yeah. when they're actually listening, and you feel like it'll, they might be more critical. They're more supportive. Yeah. But, you know, it's a little bit intimidating at first. You, you feel like those, uh, it took a time to transition over to that? Yeah, um, I think it's a big step. But something I was actually, I think, afraid of at first. Is like it just seemed like, a, you know, um, at Blue Rock, I was like a big fish in a small pond. I was the only poet. Um, and merging into that was like being a small fish in a big pond. And that's a little, I was like, it scared me a little bit, but I got used to it and learned to swim, you know? Well, I like the, the interactions I have with the poetry scene, especially that one in particular, mm-hmm. for the most part, they're very supportive. Yeah, they're extremely friendly, extremely supportive. And that's something the musicians as well. Musicians are extremely supportive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny, because I, I, I really came into the scene through comedy, really. Yeah. You stand up, and there's some supportive, but not the same level. Yeah. So I was like, oh, maybe I should have started. Which is funny, <laughs> because I think my... F- Second uh, way I I started to you know be creative when I was young was poetry. Poetry was actually mm-hmm. my first real thing I I got into in, in early high school years. Yeah, um, it was later translated into filmmaking, but that's only because writing was always my thing. Telling yeah. stories. Um, but I think uh, I think when I started uh, hitting up the open mics and seeing more poets, I realized like it's actually a bigger scene here than I thought. Yeah. Um, because in in some ways, like, I mean, like most things in the, in the sounds there or in the South Bay, yeah, we have it here. You just have to look for it, yeah. Um, because it, it, a lot of the stuff is not within the uh, the consciousness of, of of the city, exactly, yeah. Uh, and but like, uh, like, have you had a hard time yourself? You know, when you started out looking for places, or yeah, um, I had no clue where to go. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't even know there was a poetry center of San Jose until I got invited to be on the board. Um, and it's I, I found my doors in 
luckily, but I think it, it needs a lot more promotion. It needs a lot more people saying, hey, there's poetry happening. Um, so I, I try to make a point of going to local mics that aren't poetry ones and saying, hey, I'm also kind of a an agent for the poetry scene. Mm-hmm. Come talk to me and I'll get you hooked up with other open mics in the area if you want to see more poetry so people know what's happening. Because um, I didn't know what was happening at all and I didn't know the scope of what's happening. Um, I think one of the things that intimidated me a lot was um, thinking of it as like a slam scene. And I don't do slam. Like, I just like, I don't want to compete. It has a competitive element. Yeah, it's competitive. And I'm like, I'm not an angry person. And a lot of slam is angry. You know? I was like, I don't want to shout at you. <laughs> so uh, uh-huh. I was intimidated. Like, I was like, that's not my style. Um, but that's what a lot of the performance poetry is. Or I, in my head it was. was It's all slam. And then I started finding other mics and just doing my stuff anyway. And realizing there's other poets doing other things as well. Okay. That's so funny you mentioned that. Yeah. You, you gotta have a bit of anger in you. Yeah. <laughs> you, and you never tried slam before? Um... I tried writing a couple pieces, but it didn't really. Like, I never finished them. Yeah. Um, I think I competed in a slam once, and I did not do that well at all. Um, I was drunk. I just kind of walked into one drunk, and I was like, "Okay, I'll do this." Now, uh, not not now that you. How, how, how does your family take that you you chose poetry? Uh, um, are they supportive for the most part? Kind of, yeah. My mother, um, for years when I was in high school, was like, "This is just a hobby," um, but um, I knew it wasn't. And she's getting around to the fact that it's what I really want in my life. She's still trying to be the rational, like, you need to um, still have a real job and so on and so on. Um, and my father's very quiet, but I think he does support me. Um, he wanted to be a writer when he was my age, too. Ah. So I guess he wrote a novel when he was, like, 20. You got the gene in you. Yeah. He, he wrote a no- novel at 20. Yeah. Um, Is it, it published? No, 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 no. Does, does he, has he have the manuscript? Yeah. Still... We, my sister had it published for him, like, in a little, like, I haven't read it yet. Uh-huh. Um, but it, I think it was, like, just a rough draft that he wrote. Um, I think he wants to get back into it now that he's retired. Yeah. Um, but they they do support me. Um, but I've, I've sort of always kept my artistic life separate from my the rest of my life. Um, so they don't, I don't really invite them out to things or show them too much. They just happen to know that I'm... You're doing these things? Doing these things. Are your siblings also involved in creative no, aspects? No, not at all. Um, well, my older sister, I have three sisters. Um, the youngest uh, works for like Thermo Fisher or something like that as uh-huh. a chemist. The other one's an accountant. <laughs> and the oldest also used to write, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, and I think she works for a copywriting firm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and you were the only boy? Yeah, I'm the only boy in the family. Are you in the middle? I'm the youngest. Oh, you're the youngest? Yeah, I'm the baby. <laughs> How was that experience like? Um... I had four mothers growing yeah. up. <laughs> what was the age gap? Um, so my sisters are all two years apart, and then I'm seven years after. Seven years? Uh-huh. Wow. Wow, man. <laughs> yeah. How, how was that growing up? Like, was, was that, you felt like you, you tapped into a pers- perspective that you didn't think you would have had if you didn't have that many sisters at that age? Yeah, probably got spoiled, apparently. Um, and I wasn't part of like their whatever drama they had growing up because they're so close together. So I kind of watched it from afar, mm-hmm. and I just got to observe them as people rather than like siblings. I had to like conflict with too much. Um, but I think it was okay. I think it was good for me. I mean, I it was I had a good childhood, you know. Mm-hmm. All right, man. And uh, walk me through your process. Like, how, how do you go from from something that that that's in your head to on paper? And then talk, walk me through the process of from paper to, to spoken. Okay. Um, so it usually starts with that term, the shitty first draft. So usually it's notes and a couple lines that I really like. And then I'm like, okay, I really love this. I have something that's really solid. Um, sometimes it comes to me when I'm driving. So I've lost a lot of poems because I couldn't write them down in time. Um, I'll be driving and I'll have this line that keeps coming to me. And I'll keep repeating to myself as I'm on the road on the freeway. Um, and if I get a chance to write down, I'll have like some gibberish on a page. And then I'll try writing the first draft, and it'll be really awful. And I'll get really discouraged every single time. Um, it, I mean, it's like you have this amazing idea in your head, and you have garbage in front of you that you just put down. Um, and then it's just getting to that point of writing the second draft where it's a little bit better. Um, usually by the fourth draft, I realize what the poem's missing mm-hmm. and where it really needs to be going. Um, and by the fifth or sixth draft, I have it like really where it should be. Like, it's, this is the poem, that this is what I'm trying to say, it just needs some perfecting. And then around the sixth draft, I have it ready to, like, perform. And, and having, because I rewrite it by hand every single time, I don't just edit it, I start fresh. Um, and then I'll rearrange lines, I'll rearrange whole stanzas, I'll cut things, add things. 
Um, and then by the time that time I hit that, I've rewritten it so many times that it's sort of already in my head. And so memorizing is easy mm. because I've already written it so many times. Um, and then once I have it memorized, I will take it onto the stage and I'll keep doing that until I stop thinking about the lines and I can just say it without thinking. And then um, usually I'll go back to the poem later and realize that I changed a bunch of lines or added words because it sounds better when I speak it this way. And I'd forgotten how I wrote it originally. I just changed it to make it sound better. So part, uh, performing is actually part of the writing process for me now, is performing it for a couple of years and forgetting the, the, the written form and then writing it all out over again. Do you have a certain way of performing? Like, Do you feel like you have your own style in the way you, you project things? I think so. Um, I don't really know how to categorize it or explain it, but um, for me, I try to feed off of the audience. I think it's one of those things is when you start performing, and you would know this too as a performer, um, like at first you have that, you're just nervous. Yeah, and then you realize at a point how to work with that energy. It's because it's that kind of that adrenaline rush, and wow. you start playing with it. And then um, at least with poetry, like, and probably with comedy, with the laughs, it's like you start feeding off the audience. Like you start feeling what the audience is feeling, mm. and it creates a sort of echo chamber of um, like when you get them in a certain state, you feel it too, and you can give it back to them. And it's just this feedback that keeps getting stronger and stronger. Uh, were you ever in a position where you were just not feeling it? Oh, plenty of times. Oh, I'm sure, because you mentioned that you did it on the bar. So I'm yeah. sure you have. Yeah. But actually, I have had better receptions at bars than I have at certain open mics. <laughs> <laughs> you get the woo in there or something mm -hmm. like that? Yeah. I, mean, I can deal with I can deal with the woos. Yeah, yeah. I hear um, you, man. In comedy, it's, it's similar. You know, in yeah. comedy, it's, it feels good. I mean, it feels good, of course, to get a laugh. Yeah. But to get, like, a big reaction from a crowd. Yeah. You know, it's, like, it's even better. Yeah. Um, and I think that like Pochik, you start learning these textures to silence. Like people are being quiet in a certain way. And it's something it's indescribable so that you can feel it. Yeah. It's like tangible, the way that they're feeling a certain poem or feeling a certain line. And um, I think I've incorporated, tried to incorporate that a lot into my performance. Um, so I, I don't really practice that much, like in the front of the mirror or anything. I don't try to perfect it. Um, I just try to go in there and just feel that poem at that moment and then try to feel the audience feeling it. Yeah, man, I hear you, man. I like for me, uh, it, it is a different process performing either stand up or mm. uh, or poetry or music. But I think the one that really, really scares to death for me, like to, to perform it, is poetry. Yeah, which is weird. Like I'm okay to you know try to be funny. Yeah, I'm okay trying to you know miraculously sing a song. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to poetry, I feel like that's truly a honest part of me that I'm revealing mm -hmm. and I'm being judged by. And um, and I'm looking for an honest reaction as opposed yeah. to comedy. You're looking, you know, a specific reaction. Yeah. And for music, it's, you know, a, a, music for me is a bit more of a vanity thing, thing. It's like, fuck you. You're going to listen to my song whether you like it or not. Yeah. But with poetry, it's like, <laughs> that's how I honestly feel. Yeah. And... I don't know what you're thinking while you're look while you're listening to me. Yeah. And that scares the living shit out of oh, me. Oh, it's freaky as fuck. It is to let a stranger in like that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I hold poetry as uh, the a, a top form for me to start. Yeah. I, I think I think uh, out of everything I try to make my songs poetic. I try to yeah. make my jokes poetic. I try to make everything has that has that theme yeah but like I said I just get nervous as hell doing it yeah and I, I, I don't do it often but when I do it's like I'm like you know my chest is palpitating yeah oh my god yeah but I figure for someone like you though who, who does it on, on a more constant mm. basis it, yeah does it, does it come easier um, it becomes cathartic yeah so it's going on stage and being naked and then kind of being comfortable being naked and it's sort of like almost like coming to terms with like your own, I guess, emotional body, like realizing that you feel like you're sexy and that you're attractive. And you go on stage like, this is my emotions and they're attractive, you know? Yeah. And then, um, you know, you get, when you have that, when you have that sort of, that confidence in it, it becomes a lot easier. It's still a little scary, but it becomes a lot easier, you know? Uh-huh. You gotta find that sexiness in there, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard no one put it that way. That's interesting. Um, I don't know. I love, I, I started craving it like I it becomes like this this need for me now is to go up there and be naked and the metaphor helps when you're not saying that this person said this thing to me or you're not talking about reality necessarily you're in a world entirely of metaphor um, it makes it a little bit easier to be that because you're abstracting yourself mm. and people can see how you feel but not the neuroses behind it you know or the weird 
you know, the things that you hate about yourself. You're not seeing that. They're just seeing the product of it. Mm. And the product itself can be beautiful no matter where it came from. Now, you're in the, uh, you're familiar when it comes to producing a show. A little bit, yeah. Especially uh, a poetry show. Do you feel it is difficult to appeal to to uh, the average person? Yeah. To attend a poetry gather? Yeah. Most people think they hate poetry. Um, for the start, right? It's like it's almost like a, a mainstream uh, a thought. It's yeah, like you, you you must hate po- not hate poetry, but you must look down on it on some way. Yeah, point. yeah. Um, and I don't blame them. I mean, I, like I said, people are fed so much bad poetry or t- boring poetry, or poetry they're just not in the mood for that you learn to hate it. Um, and we're not fed poetry that's exciting and exhilarating and it makes you feel something. Um, and so I think we just need to change the concept of what poetry is. And um, it's a shame that spoken word is such like a minority and it's kind of put down, it's, it's seen as small or like a fringe group of, of artists do it. Um, when it should, I think nowadays every poet should be a performer. Um, I don't think there's, there's time anymore to just be a page poet. Um, it, it's really on the stage now. It's where you have to reach people like any other art medium, you know? That's an interesting notion. Forget the forget the paper. Mm-hmm. Go to the stage. Yeah. Hmm. Well, why do you feel that is? Um, I think it's because we need to change the perspective of what poetry is. Mm. And there is a place for it on the page, of course. Um, but people see it as something that they don't understand. And a lot of great poems, like I'll just dismiss them. And um, because you have to like un- like unclench a fist, like finger by finger, because it's such it's so dense. And most people don't have the time for that. And even I, like, if I don't like a poem by the second reading, I probably won't go any further, even if it's a great poem, if it doesn't catch me. And I think being a performer, you also learn how to catch people. Um, so I try not to write dense poetry. I try to write poetry that's really approachable. Um, and uh, I just think that we need to um, capture people more. It's just why I try to go to bars or a music open mics and do poetry. It's where they're not expecting it. Mm. And they're not they don't realize they can actually enjoy poetry. Um, and it catches them off guard, and they realize that, okay, this can be okay. Do you feel that the changes that you feel should be applied in poetry, mm-hmm. do you feel like a part of it has to do with the way we now communicate through the internet, through social media, how poetry is actually shared a lot more now Yeah. Uh, through you know through, through video, yeah. through YouTube? Uh, because I, I know, like, for thousands of years I don't know thousands maybe hundreds yeah poetry was shared around mostly by paper because that's yeah. the way to send information yeah you know but now it's like everything's digitized and everything's instant mm-hmm. and everything can be uh, manipulated creatively yeah um, did you feel like that's a big factor in why poetry must change now um, I think it's, it's the perfect time for it to do that is that it can be shared auditorily um, because of the internet there's so much poetry out there now and most of it's amateur and bad. Um, I mean, like, at first, you're going to be a bad poet for years. Yeah. And I, I, I did it, too. I just submitted my poetry online and expected people to like it. And there's so much of it that, like, it's hard to parse through it. But, um, and at, who has the time to actually sit down and read a thousand poems to find a good one? But when you can hear it, you can kind of tell immediately, this person appeals to me. There's something in it. And, I mean, if you go back to the roots of poetry, it was oral originally. It came before the written word. So we've always had poetry being spoken, and we sort of lost that on the page. And I think now we have to return to it being spoken again. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Where do you feel poetry uh, derived from? Um, where it derived from? I mean, I think it's a way of talking, of telling stories, for one. Um, like the mythologies, um, like the Odyssey was a spoken poem, which is why it has so much rep- repetition in it. So do you feel like the Greeks really honed it in? Yeah. But I think if you look at any culture, like their mythology, like uh, Native American cultures, um, it was meant to be spoken. Like these, these mythologies, these stories were stories they told over and over and over again. They were poetry in a sense. Um, and that's where it all comes from. It comes before we had the way to write it down. We spoke it and we told it. And that's where a lot of the like, ideas of like repetition, say in songs or poems come from, is that it was meant to be memorized. And if you have an epic poem you have to memorize, if you have to memorize, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of lines, right. you need repetition, you need little anchors. Right. And I put that in my own poetry, these little tiny anchors to keep me grounded as I'm reciting it. How do you go about, because um, you mentioned this when you're talking about your process, but how, how do you go about to really, um, the geography of a poem? 
That's like, a good for it, yeah. Like you know, like you, you put an anchors here, you mm-hmm. put a there. How do you how do you go about doing that? Like, do you feel like there's a certain you know, all right, four stanzas or three mm-hmm. or a certain way of saying this particular word? Do you do you ever think about that? Yeah, um, I used to do it more, um, but I actually actually really have a lot of structure in my poems that got hidden in the spoken part. Um, but I would say there's like four three line stanzas here, mm-hmm. or the poem would have this pattern of like a five line stanza, then a six line stanza, then a three line stanza, then the refrain then that's pattern happening over and over again as the poem develops and it's a good memorization technique for me is that i know that this part of the poem has to have this many lines and and it has to sort of respond so there's a lot of uh, metaphors responding to each other and lines responding to each other that um kind of get hidden and, and you could see it on the written form but when you're hearing it you don't have the time to pick up on that and i think i think it's better for me honestly is that it's kind of more subtle and something you don't realize that you realize. And as, as you're listening, you enjoy it. And you don't know why. I think it's the best part of poetry is not knowing why you enjoy it. Mm. I think with any art, it's not knowing why you enjoy it so much. And then trying to, like, you want to hear it again, you know? Uh-huh. And when someone wants to hear your poem again, that's, that's the best feeling in the world. Now, can you talk to me about the evolution of, I mean, you talked about it already earlier, mm-hmm. but do you feel like now, currently, do you feel, do you feel like there's an evolution in your poetry right now? Um... There has been, and it keeps changing. I'm not really sure where it is right now. Um, I, I, at this point, I'm, I'm not sure what the next turn is, um, because at first it was finding that six-draft rule for myself um, and going really heavy in metaphor, and then it was performing, and then it was performing with guitarist and writing pieces that were meant to be performed with guitar. And um, I'm in a big change right now. I just moved to Alameda, and I'm going to Berkeley yeah. next week. And um, I'm, I think it's gonna be a big change for me. But I'm not sure what it is yet. I can never predict it. You never thought about crossing over to music? Um, I can't sing, and I I can't either. It hasn't <laughs> stopped me. Um, in high school, I was like, I was middle school and high school. I was in uh, percussion. I was a drummer, mm-hmm. um, but I was not a good drummer, and I didn't have, I never had like the patience to practice every day. And I would see people like my other, like, other drummers are the most serious people in a in a marching band. Um, because they will practice nonstop. They act too cool for everything, but they practice every day for like hours. And I never did that. I was just like, I'm cool on my bass drum, just getting by. Um, so I still have the passion for the music, and I don't have like that that feeling other people have about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy it, but nothing. No part of me actually wants to pick up a guitar and try. You know, um, I'm happy having another musician with me on stage and them doing whatever they do. And to me, it's magic. And whatever I'm doing is my thing, and it's my magic. And we bring it together in something entirely new, you know? Music, I feel, with the right kind of music, it, it always elevates things. Yeah. Like, I remember one time at Art Boutique, like a while back, I went to the open mic, and I did stand-up. And they, um, for some reason, we thought it was a good idea to bring in musicians, like mm-hmm. three musicians to as back our music. And you're like, how's that going to work with comedy? Mm-hmm. But somehow we made it work. Yeah. And they actually made it funnier. Yeah. I, <laughs> uh, so I was like, I don't know. It, yeah. I, I, there's great um, great things to, to be found in your own work when you add different elements. Yeah. And, and trust the people that yeah. you're, you're collaborating trust with. Trust is a big part of it. Yeah. All right, man. Uh, we're almost there. Or we're almost getting there to, to the end of the show. All right, cool, cool. Uh, what's some advice that you would give to a, to a young poet out there oh god just keep trying um and you have to realize that you're gonna suck for a long time um for years that's part of the process man yeah. sucking yeah and then uh find a couple poets you like find a couple writers you like and don't be afraid to emulate them um the problem that poets have i think that other artists don't have is you can't straight up copy like with guitar you can learn to you can just play someone else's music and learn guitar that way mm-hmm. with painting you can copy another person's art and learn that way with poetry you can't just write their own their, someone else's words down you have to find your own way, your own spin on it. You have to develop your voice. You have to develop your own voice, and you have to keep finding new inspirations and new things to keep saying. Um, and I think part of it is just being willing to suck, and then eventually be willing to take criticism on once you think you're good. Mm-hmm. And you have to be humble, and you have to learn that you're going to hate it every single day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Like lately, I've come to an understanding. Like for me, it, for some reason, I shouldn't have. But I had like the biggest problem with um with student filmmaking genre. Mm-hmm. There's the student filmmaking, you know, like, and I'm like, it has to, we have to have that. I, I, because for the longest time, um, I thought about like 
why can't student filmmaking be good? Like, mm-hmm. Why can't? It? I was like, you know, they have to be bad, because you're at a young age making films. They're all bad. Yeah. You know, and I thought about this because, um, I, like, I recently finished a, a black and white film not too long ago, mm-hmm. and a friend of mine, you know, who helped me on it, he got inspired. He's like, I really want to make a film now. Like, I want to make a short mm-hmm. film, but Jorge, you got to help me out. But he's like, but I'm afraid that it's not gonna be good. Yeah. Like, like, like you, you made this. One, it's pretty good. I'm like, thanks. But I was, I was like. Hold on, and I brought in my my high school early college year mm-hmm. films, and they were some of the most atrocious mm-hmm. shit that I've ever done in my life. Just a completely, like e- even my film was like, yeah, I mean, I thought it was gonna be bad, but not that bad. Yeah, I'm like, well, you know, th- that's the only difference is that I had a head start. Yeah, at a young age. Exactly. I I, I had I had time when, like, the best time to really be shitty is when you're young. Where, yeah, where you're still developing. And honestly, most people don't give a shit about you because you're young. Yeah, exactly. You know, you don't want to be like, I don't know, like 30 or something and take it seriously and, and have to, again, you know, try to expedite that process. Yeah. And that's something I'm trying to learn, not just with filmmaking, but with, with several other creative fields. It's like, all right, all right, that joke wasn't good. Yeah. It's okay. We still work on it. Yeah. And for me, I feel like my, my bottom thing is, is definitely writing. Yeah. And I really relate to you when you said you have to go through multiple drafts. Yeah. Uh, like for me, like even a, f- a four minute movie, I have to mm-hmm. write at least five drafts, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Cause it's, it's a, some of it's poetry where there's some people who are like, Oh, one or two drafts, they're good to go. Or yeah. good, we're good to go. Me, I'm like, nah, I, <laughs> I have to, I have to really change things, kill my baby a couple of yeah. times. And, and, and I, I, I think that's probably for me creative that's the hardest part to really um embrace yeah is the sucking part yeah yeah i still struggle with it every single time i write a poem and i'm like this sucks i suck and then you just say okay i suck and this sucks and everything sucks but it's gonna be cool in the end and it's you know it's just the process it's just getting used to being awful at something i mean it's what we all do is starting to ride a bike you're gonna fall down a couple times and scrape your knee and feel like shit but you have to get through it mm. Do you feel like there's any tricks that you have up your up your sleeve to kind of get through it? Honestly, it's a lot of it is like that self confidence, and I like I started writing smut, and I just loved writing it. Um, do you still do it? <laughs> I, I got a novel a novel that I published um, about lesbians in Paris, and there's a little smut in there, so it's still part of my career, I guess. I didn't know you were a published uh, novelist. Yeah, I just had a, um, a couple years ago. I was actually right around the same time that I was getting to PCSJ. Um, I, I so I edit for a queer romance fiction company, uh-huh. and um, it's a lot of smut. And I got that job when I quit my job to be a writer. And um, I've been doing it for a couple of years now, just freelance. And um, after a while, I was like, you know, I could write one better than these, because it's a lot of really shitty novels that shouldn't have been published. Mm-hmm. So in about three weeks, it was over the summer, I sat down, and every day I wrote like 2,000 words until like a 40,000-word novel. And um, I submitted it, it got published, and it's about lesbians in Paris. It's called Peach and the Poppy. Peach and Poppy. Mm-hmm. What's what's it about? Um, so, I'm sure it's much more than just lesbians hanging out. In Paris. <laughs> um, so it started with my best friend is a lesbian, and she met her girlfriend right now. They've been together for like three years um, on Craigslist, and like we need a more romantic story than this. Wait, how did that happen? Hold on. How, how, how did they find love through Craigslist? I don't know. Like they, it's kind of having to hook up at first. Yeah. On Craigslist, um, my best friend had just come back from the Air Force and broke up with a girlfriend and was just kind of looking for somebody. And um, they started seeing each other and eventually turned to a relationship, I guess. But, like, it started out as, like, a hookup on Craigslist. And she's like, I need a better story. Um, and we were just drinking one night. And so I made this whole story about how they met in Paris. And, um, like, the whole way that, like, they met in a cafe. And then she followed her home. And then they shared a sticker or something like that. And um, it ended up being the plot for the novel. Um, that I, just tried, I just wrote it out. And I had this weird spurt of writing prolifically for, like, three weeks. And, um essentially just a tourist in Paris and a woman who lives there um, connecting, you know. Do you feel there's an art to writing smart? Yeah. A lot of people go right at it and there's graphic and it's it's disgusting a little bit. Um, and like, I'm all about sex, but the, the way they write it is like it's really unappealing. Um, and I think you have to turn it again to a metaphor and make it poetic. Like talk about sex as something that's actually beautiful. Right. Because I have a figure to, you know blur the line between pornographic and mm-hmm. between telling a, a story worthwhile dedicating your time to really uh, 
dedicate yourself to reading. Yeah. Uh, and I think there has to be an emotional element to it. Yeah. And if you read books like Lolita, even, like, Grant's about a pedophile, but the way he describes things is beautiful and poetic, which is why the book's almost disturbing, is that the way he sees it is so beautiful. And the character, it's a tragic character. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's not so much that he falls, like, he, it's a guy trying to get with a girl, but it's like, you, you see the process of a guy, mm-hmm. uh, uh, f- tragedy, you know, yeah. and by the end you're like, fuck, you know, I'm not into that, but I could, you know, kind of understand yeah. where he's coming from. Yeah, like, the first passage of that book is so beautifully written, and, like, sex can be written beautifully, it just often isn't, um, and I think it takes, it, maybe you just have to think about sex in a certain way, and stop thinking about how it gets you off. And how about like you get really into it and like the me- how beautiful it is, mm-hmm. um, because like a lot of sex is just not something you'd want to write about, you know. Um, <laughs> it's not, a lot of sex is not sexy. Right. Um, you find the parts that are sexy or romantic or beautiful, and I, I try to usually find a metaphor, like describing a body as a landscape or something like celestial or something else, and playing off that as they go through the sexual emotions. Interesting. Yeah. And do you think like I mean, it's an interesting topic for me right now? Mm-hmm. Because do you go in for like how to describe these things, or do you go in from a story standpoint first? Um, I try to start with the descriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, like my biggest influence, Richard Bard again, um, writes extremely short chapters, and I emulated him in my novel of chapters that are maybe like a couple paragraphs long, like vignettes. Yeah, and there's like maybe like a hundred of them in in like a forty in a, in a thin book, and um, it's yeah exactly it's vignettes. And so the plot keeps moving, and I'm not really that big in plot, honestly. I'd rather just describe small things over and over and over again. Um, so I kind of look for a setting of a place and describing that place, and something has to happen there, I guess. But it's more about how that place interacts with the conversation or how something interacts with something else in this world. Um, and it's just these small little, like, bite-sized chapters. And so the sex is also like this bite-sized little thing that's just its own moment. And when you start seeing it as not something that has to move the plot forward, but a moment that has to happen, it changes the way you write a little bit. How many books have you written? Um, so I wrote that one. I'm working on another one. It's sort of in a series, I guess, um, about lesbians in San Francisco. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're you're going to be known as that author. Yeah. The, the lesbian <laughs> in blank. Yeah. Lesbians in Portland. Lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I wrote a shorter one um, that was about a bisexual girl and a guy in San Francisco as well. Mm-hmm. Same, like, universe, I guess, of people. Um, yeah. And I took the main character, like, the side character from Peach and the Poppy, who's the best friend of one of the girls, and put him as the main character, or as the love interest. Seems like a, the, the queer culture is a big influence in you. Yeah. How'd you get involved in that? Honestly, like, I just have a best friend that's a lesbian, and, um, like, that's my biggest influence in the queer culture, and she's not, like, super into it either. She just kind of is a lesbian. Yeah. Um... I don't know. It's something that I've always kind of connected with, though. Um, I mean, I am straight, but um, it's something like I joined the GSA in high school. It's something I've always just had a... So she was your friend through high school? Yeah, we met. Um, I was a sophomore. She was a senior. Mm-hmm. And we became best friends like like that. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's interesting because my best friend when I was a kid was a, a, a lesbian. Really, yeah. Well, she didn't come out to like later, but like uh, I, I remember, um, yeah, she, me and her, we lived right next to each other and we... we got through our elementary school and yeah. middle school and high school and when she came out I was like yeah that makes sense yeah yeah. <laughs> it was so funny because she was so uh, you know she was so scared to come out to me she was like yeah. right. and when she finally did I'm like what took you so long mm-hmm. like Jesus that's nothing like I don't care it explains a lot actually to yeah. my favor now I don't feel bad losing to you into whatever yeah I don't know like whatever sport you should <laughs> kick my ass in yeah but and do you... I, I'm asking this because I worry about this. Because mm-hmm. for me as a writer, I, I definitely love to write about other people's perspective and yeah. imagine about the perspective. Yeah. But I find that, that today, it's become, at least in filmmaking, it's becoming more difficult to really uh, put it out there, to, to be judged by it, to be like... I think actors get the most of it. Yeah. But I feel like soon enough, writers are going to get it too. It's like... If you're not let if you're not a woman, yeah. Why are you writing for a woman? Yeah. If you're not gay, why are you why are you writing for a, a gay character? Like who who are you? Yeah. And I worry about this myself. Yeah. Uh, do do you have those concerns? I've had those worries a little bit, um, but I I think it's one of those things where we're getting a little too far into some PC things. Um, is that it's like you you don't know of course. 
but she can still try. And that's what writing is. It's trying to explore somebody else's perspective. And if I could only write about being a white male, then of course I'm going to provide more white male literature that you're going to criticize then as being white male literature. You just can't win. Yeah, you can't win. <laughs> like, I can't help the way I was born. Um, and like, I know, I think it was a writer, who was like a Vietnamese writer who wrote about being, um, something about like being like a, like a um, I think a Muslim terrorist, something like that. Um, I think they were a terrorist. But like the story is told from that perspective, and you got a lot of backlash. It's like, it's like a, I think it's like a Vietnamese Australian wrote the story, and it's like uh, you know you can keep criticizing and nitpicking away at what people are and what they can or can't write, but it's silly. It's just you do whatever you want to do. And I think most of the stuff that gets criticized is stuff that's good. Yeah, if something's shitty, nobody gives a shit who wrote it. And exactly. Why. Yeah. But if something's really good and and it, and it's and it makes its way to pop culture, then people are like, all right, who's this fucker and yeah. whatever. And I have those concerns. It's, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I'm I'm nowhere near that success. But yeah. like But like you know, like I have ideas of certain characters I want to portray, and for me, it's always about context and intent. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like uh, I'm not here to exploit these kind of people. I'm here to understand where they're coming from and what's a journey one of them might go through. Yeah. But but yeah, what can you do, right? You just yeah. can't win sometimes. I think yeah, you gotta be with it. I think you just have to try not to be condescending or patronizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the book Life of Pi, um, I think it was written by like a white guy, but the way he talks about Indian food sounds like a white guy trying to write from the perspective of an Indian person, and that's why it turned the book turned me off a lot because of that. Um, I think you have to avoid trying to like be that culture, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something I tell young screenwriters. It's like, I mean. It's okay to write about things that you're not familiar with. Yeah. But put some effort and research into it. Yeah. I hate to put research in, and I think it helps to talk to somebody that is from that culture or that place and say, does this sound real to you? Uh-huh. And once you get that okay, for me, that's like that's it. If they say it's okay, then it's okay. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it, you don't like it. That's your well, thing. Well, even that, it's like, you know, like sometimes I'm like, why should I care what this one person thinks mm-hmm. it's okay? Like, I don't yeah. know. It's, it's, it's very convoluted and yeah. very gray. Yeah. But like I said, it, it really that backlash only really happens when it's something's really good yeah well, of, of quality yeah you can say I guess and any PR is good PR I guess <laughs> you know uh, anyway uh, Caesar Kent thank yep. you for coming on the podcast right, thank you uh, we, we had a good talk we're good yeah, yeah we're good we're good we're good alright thank you for coming oh wait where can people find your stuff like if uh, people are interested in your books or in your poetry yeah. and stuff um, I am on Facebook so you can find me under Caesar Kent I also have an artist page Caesar Kent and my other author named Caesar J.M. Koftile. Um, don't worry about trying to spell that one. Just look up Caesar Kent. Um, I'm the only one on Facebook. So you can find me there, and that's where I kind of keep myself um, out and open to the public. Not Twitter? No, not Twitter. Not yet, at least. How about your books? Where, 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 um, we'll check out your books. You can find them online. Um, the Peach and the Pop, you can find it on Amazon or through the, uh, the website of the press, lessthan3press.com. Um, and you can find it anywhere, probably anywhere that sells books. You can just look it up online. All right, Caesar, thank you for coming. Awesome, thank you.